Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It's October 2020, and I had grand plans to write up a witty introduction on the state of the world today, but it's just exhausting. Pandemics, wildfires, hurricanes, racial tension, and I got a really bad haircut yesterday. Just 2020 is just the worst. So let's do something more pleasant and check in with a historian. Today's guest is Adam Lehman, an assistant professor of history at Guilford Technical Community College. As usual, we will discuss Adam's academic and professional background, his teaching career, and his scholarly research into missed privateering opportunities during the War of 1812. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Adam Lehman, and I'm an assistant professor of history at Guilford Technical Community College. Great, and we'll talk a little bit more about that career as we get going here. But in the meantime, can you tell us about your academic and professional background? Sure. Uh, let's see. I got my uh, undergraduate degree at the University of North Carolina uh, at Greensboro in archaeology and classical civilizations. And then uh, I went on to do my master's work at uh, East Carolina University. Uh, I got my master's in uh history through the maritime study program uh, there. And when you were working on your MA um, at East Carolina, what was your, uh, what were your primary research focuses there? So I was looking at uh, privateering during the War of 1812. Uh, basically, I was looking at the, uh, it, it's not very exciting. It's, uh, it was uh, statistical history. Uh, so basically, I was looking at ways that the, the government or the United States government at the time could have uh, either aided or helped or uh, benefited uh, privateering against British merchant ships. Uh, so it's rather dry. Uh, and if you, you know, if you have insomnia or you have problems <laughs> sleeping, I highly recommend it. It's a it's not the most gripping uh, page turner, but it is uh, it does look at the legislation and policies and uh, it has some good uh, statistical data to it. So. Uh, I'm hoping, you know, that, that uh, to continue working on the research uh, to see if I could turn it into something uh, a bit more. So, what is the what's the general story that's happening there? So, during the War of 1812, you're you're saying that the U.S. could have hired privateers to kind of carry on naval battles against the British. Is that kind of where you're going with that? Kind of. They could have supported it uh, a bit more. Uh, so, the uh, in 1814, they had a choice between uh, building. A couple of uh, really expensive uh, battleships, and instead uh, they could have spent the money to uh, aid in privateering and the destruction of British commerce. And so the the uh, the part of the reason that they they couldn't uh, was just the way the financial structure of the United States government at the time was that they uh, all the tariffs are the the so uh, the the way the government was primarily run was through tariffs on. Uh, imports and the only people who were bringing anything in during that time were the privateers, and so uh, it's they they really couldn't, uh, yeah. They, it was just a resource that they they could not uh, exploit to their full advantage. They just couldn't uh, not tax these guys. Um, there were attempts to uh, to make it somewhat easier, but for the most part, they they needed the revenue that was coming in because uh, American uh, the the imports went. Uh, like at the the start of the war, it was 106 million, and then at the end of the war, it was four million. Right. And so, without that revenue stream, uh, the government really, uh, well, yeah, 
uh, we're going to say really, uh, really had some problems. So, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, uh, part of it is, is that uh, a number of people, they look at uh, privateering during the war, but most people are trying to figure out uh, how successful these guys were, like uh, how much money they made or, uh, and mine was more of a, uh, you know, if they'd been supported just a little bit more uh, by the government, uh, they might've been able to do a considerable amount of damage to uh, British shipping. Uh, but as it was, it's uh, privateering is one of those to where you're licensed by the the, the government you're working for to uh, seize shipping and bring it in so it can be uh, adjudicated and sold as opposed to uh, commerce raiders which tend to uh, destroy uh, merchandise or uh, destroy stuff. The problem with that is that if you end up attacking a, the, the wrong flagship or uh, destroying uh, property that's not part of the war, uh, then you run into all kind of uh, legal and diplomatic issues. And that was sort of the thing, is that privateers could be encouraged, but they couldn't be controlled and mm -hmm. or directed, uh, not unlike uh, naval ships. Uh, so the United States Navy during the time, uh, same time was relatively small, and they were relatively, uh, had a number of effective commerce raiders, but uh, those that was their, their primary focus. As opposed to the privateers, they were, uh, it's, it's a weird mixture of, uh, I would say, uh, patriotism and uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, that they were doing it for the country, but they were also doing it to get paid. So. Right. <laughs> so that can create um, an interesting <laughs> dynamic. It, it, it makes it a little more, yeah, it makes it kind of complicated. So. Yeah. And so you actually, you brought up a point there that I hadn't really thought about before. So if I'm interpreting this right, during the War of 1812, of course, the British are going to put up as much of a blockade around the U.S. as they can to try to starve the U.S. and starve the government of revenues um i hadn't thought about the starving them of revenues part of it because but yeah if you cut off the trade and back in those days since the federal government was largely funded by tariffs that's going to be a huge problem for the u.s government if they're being starved of their their revenue stream and so yeah well the goal was to to keep the war short was to uh the initially the idea was is that it'd only be about six months and so then, uh, it's, you know, you can, uh, you can get away with, uh, with a certain loss of, uh, merchant marine activity because you don't believe that the war is going to go on, uh, much longer than, you know, uh, than, than a year at the most. The problem is, is that the initial rush to march to Canada to, uh, to grab, uh, real estate to gain a, a leverage or a bargaining point with Great Britain, uh, didn't materialize and the war just keep, continues to drag on and on. And on, and uh, after 1814, uh, with the uh, when Napoleon uh, abdicates, uh, the British now have a free hand, and so they're able to put even more and more ships uh, to tighten the noose uh, on American shipping. So, uh, but the way mine looked at it is that uh, in uh, 18, 1814, a lot of these guys, since they couldn't send their prizes in, they started to burn them. Uh, and so 1814 is kind of a pivotal year because these guys are, are burning prizes and they're hoping that uh, there'll be legislation to where they get paid for sinking the tonnage, but it's never going to materialize. Uh, it gets uh, stalled out in Congress and these guys, uh, they, uh, it's, uh, it's sort of a David versus Goliath type thing because the, the British had uh, over uh, 10,000 
merchant ships uh, of various tonnage. And throughout the course of the war, uh, uh, American privateers and the United States Navy, that uh, the impact on that uh, was, uh, from the British estimates, it's less than a thousand, and from the American estimates, it's uh, anywhere from sixteen hundred to. Uh, 2,500. But that's still just a drop in the bucket against uh, such a huge uh, ton of, or, uh, yeah, a huge number of, of British ships. So. Who were these potential privateers? Were these people that had been involved with legal shipping up until the blockade hit and then they became blockade runners kind of thing? Or uh, who, who were these guys? Well, so uh, most of these guys, you'll see them uh, when ordinary uh, ordinary avenues for uh, merchant practices are kind of limited. Uh, this is where those, uh, these, I would say these merchant syndicates kind of uh, start. So basically you have, uh, if you look at like uh, uh, privateers out of Baltimore, uh, you could, there's there's two different ways that you could run a, a privateering ship. You could run it as a letter of mark trader to where basically you bought a privateering uh, license and you were, uh, if you ran across an enemy ship at some point, you could seize it uh, and then bring it in to adjudicate it. But that wasn't your primary focus. And the other one was uh, guys who did privateering vessels who were really focused on uh, basically attacking uh, British merchant ships or, uh, and, and so uh, it comes down to cost to basically uh, what you're uh, what you're willing to fund, and so they sold shares on the vessels, uh, like uh, basically like stock options or uh, like uh, companies, and that was the thing is that they pool resources, uh, you invest, uh, and so the upfront cost for a letter of mark trader is about twenty five thousand, for a privateer it's about forty thousand, and so that's a sort of a, a serious investment uh, in the in the early nineteenth century. So uh, you'd have a lot of people, they would buy shares on this. It's kind of like lotto tickets. So if the ship came in and you made a, uh, a killing, then it was a good investment. If uh, the ship you know, got lost at sea, got captured, then uh, you lost your money. So, so uh, for most of these guys, these are just ordinary uh, seamen. Uh, although uh, you will find a lot of them are... Uh, landsmen who get uh, who get sucked up in the in the privateering because you uh, you get your shares uh, so you got shares for uh, for your occupation for what you did on the ship and then if there was uh, bonus money or things like that then it got paid out too because you got a, a percentage of whatever the prizes were so it uh, some of these guys uh, like Ottaway Burns he's a North Carolinian privateer on his uh, last privateering voyage he uh, his he captured over a dozen ships and uh, he made uh, with his uh, with uh, his advertising agent uh, that he had he made uh, over three hundred thousand dollars so you could make a lot of money uh, if you were successful and then you could also if you weren't you could also end up imprisoned uh, in England in, in Dartmoor and that's a uh, that, that's pretty bad the regulation that goes with it is rather intriguing because there's a uh, the legal system to adjudicate these cases is is uh, is really fascinating because they would you know you bring the prize into port and then you have to uh, have it uh, basically uh the you need to take it to an admiralty court to where it gets uh, adjudicated uh and then every then it goes to auction where everything gets sold and then after that then that's when you you know divide up the spoils and so the owners of the ship usually got the biggest share uh and then uh you know it worked its all its way all the way down to the crew so 
and a lot of these guys they'd sign on for it because uh, that that really was their the only option at the time. And so your like you said, your general project was talking about how the federal government could have it could have been more effective to fund some of these guys to lead basically right. I'm guessing kind of like harassing type attacks against the the British kind of keep them right. occupied that kind of thing. Well, the, so the the goal would have been to uh, drive up insurance rates, to mm. uh, to attack British commerce, to uh, basically uh, to to make them feel the the full impact of the war. And uh, maybe if they had been willing to to pay for the tonnage uh, that that these guys were uh, were going to sink, it might have encouraged uh, uh, more of that behavior, which then could have uh, either sped up uh, the conclusion of the war uh, or uh, I don't know, uh, given uh, uh, it, it might have uh, given us more opportunities to, uh, to, to have a victory. Uh, the, because most people, they look at the War of 1812, it's what uh, Donald Hickey called it, the forgotten conflict, because most people, they don't remember it. They don't know about it. We, we barely teach it uh, uh, in high schools and at colleges, and uh, we don't go into the depths of what it was, because it's not one of those wars that you know, is really exciting or one of the ones that we, that we won. So as a result, it gets kind of downplayed. So uh, anybody who's going in to look for a, uh, a master's or a PhD in history, you got to find your, your niche. You have to find an area of uh, history that people haven't really looked uh, that much into, uh, to, into detail. So that way you can develop your own theories, your own ideas. You can, you know, take it uh, and, uh, you know, make it your own. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got the opportunity to work with some a uh, lot of really good guys out at ECU who are uh, who are really big in uh, uh, privateering. Uh, Dr. Carl Swanson, uh, he's retired now, but uh, he looked at uh, let's see privateering uh, in the during the colonial age and uh, worked with Wade Dudley, who's a really good guy. He's about to retire, I think. Uh, he looked at the the British blockade and how it may not have been as effective as everybody wants to think. Uh, so, uh, you know, and you've run into some really good guys to, to research with, to uh, bounce your ideas off of. And uh, if you go to the right institutions, I mean, it's still, it really is a lot about networking. Yeah. Yeah. And that sounds like a really interesting uh, project. Are, are you going to keep going with that project or are you going to move on to other things? Do you think? Uh, no, I plan to keep on with it. I'm, currently in the uh, graduate program here at uh, UNCG uh, in geography. Hmm. Uh, so I'm uh, hoping that I can take some of my old research and add a uh, geographical element to it to uh, do some mapping to see if I can uh, flush out a few more details uh, about the war that uh, that people may, may not know about. Oh, that's very cool. I'm a huge... Um... GIS nerd, and so uh, <laughs> I, I approve well, of this. So, <laughs> oh yeah, well the, I I like the uh, I so I did uh, a lot of my uh, for my undergraduate I had a, a minor in anthropology and geography, and uh, I really liked doing it. Uh, and when I got out at ECU, the the initially the goal was to be sort of a I was going to go into underwater archaeology uh, and. I was going to be like some sort of hybrid cross between uh, Jacques Cousteau and Indiana Jones. That was the <laughs> that was the plan, nice. and it, it just didn't quite work out that way. Um, the contract archaeology is you know kind of feast or famine to where uh, you're always looking for work or you're always 
uh, you know, trying to find uh, something to, to do. And it, uh, it's, it's, it's not the easiest way to, uh, to have a family. Yeah, it's not, so, it's not as glamorous as it is on TV or in the movies. No, it's just not. For every hour you spend in the field, it's uh, eight hours in the lab or, uh, you know, and it's just, uh, yeah, uh, you end up, it, it ends up being a, uh, a lot more work uh, than than uh, what a lot of people expect. Okay. So I, I turned uh, to uh, teaching. I uh, had an assistantship while I was at ECU. And I got an opportunity to teach some American history classes, and uh, I really liked teaching. So uh, that was sort of the the next step. Is that I, I made a uh, transition uh, to as more of a, uh, a a paper historian rather than an archaeologist, and that's uh, and I since I, I enjoy teaching, I, uh, my wife and I we moved back to uh, Central Carolina here, and. I uh, applied for a, a faculty and training position at uh, Guilford Tech, you know, 12 years ago. And I went through the program and then uh, I started adjunct teaching and then I did a time limited teaching. And then I did uh, started full time, you know, uh, not quite a, a decade ago. And so it's amazing how much how fast the time goes by because it doesn't feel like it uh, was that long ago that I just got here. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, the time is... <laughs> Even as a historian, time is weird. <laughs> I started yeah. my started my PhD program in 2005, which was basically, I had other career before that. And then I started in 2005. And so I've been teaching since then. And so, yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that I'm coming up on 15 years of doing this stuff. And it's, it's it seems like it was just, you know, the cliche, just like yesterday. So. It, it really does, but uh, that's the thing is you end up uh, you, so you you find uh, opportunities to keep networking and try to expand a little bit. Uh, uh, so uh, my boss is also a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jeff Kynert, and uh, so he hooked me up with uh, Spencer Tucker, uh, and I actually got to get an article published on a an area that's uh, slightly outside of my wheelhouse because uh, I did I looked at. Uh, uh, it was a, a critical analysis on on uh, unconditional surrender during World War II, which is hmm. you know uh, somewhat removed from the 19th century sailing ships. <laughs> a bit, it's, um, but uh, it's a it was a, he's a great guy to to work with, and so I think that's the thing is that you uh, you know you never stop uh, trying to find opportunities to to reach out to go to conferences to do workshops to uh, basically to uh, to stay current. You know, because uh, you never know when the uh, next opportunity is going to pop up. Because uh, that's what I did uh, two summers ago. I uh, did a, uh, I I signed a, or I applied for a National Endowment of Humanities Summer Institute. So I did uh, Migration and Empire, the Roman experience from Marcus Aurelius to Muhammad. Since I teach a lot of uh, world history uh, one classes here at Guilford Tech, and it it was really a, a great experience. Uh, I highly recommend it for uh, anybody who, because uh, I got to go out to Chapel Hill and uh, talk with uh, Dr. Richard Talbot and uh, about twenty five other uh, aspiring scholars uh, who are all interested in uh, you know life and times in the ancient world from uh, two hundred to six hundred. So that's a small but eclectic group uh they're really good people and 
uh, I think that's it is that you just got to keep looking for those uh, opportunities. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what life is like as an assistant professor at a community college? What's what's your what's your daily life look like? Oh, sure. Oh, let's see. I teach. Uh, so typically I have uh, six classes. Uh I have a few that are online. Uh, most of them are face-to-face. Uh, I'm usually here uh, at the school, you know, five days a week. It's uh, uh, about uh, 30 to 40 hours a week, uh, plus, you know, grading on the weekends, uh, uh, course prep. Uh, let's see, then you throw in uh, committees uh, and clubs that I'm affiliated with. So uh, I'm part of the the faculty title uh i'm the 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 chair of that uh as well as i'm also the uh uh the the archivist for the uh for the faculty officers uh as part of our faculty association here uh and let's see i'm also uh faculty advisor for uh a couple of clubs. Uh, I work with the uh, Student Veteran Association, uh, which is uh, fun. We do a lot of uh, we do a lot of cool things. Uh, I see every uh, we do uh, a luncheon for on Veterans Day. Uh, we try to just send care packages to guys still serving overseas. Uh, last year we sent uh, 39 boxes uh, of uh, stuff that we'd collected over the course of the semester. So uh, we got hooked up with a, a really good nonprofit here called uh, Operation North State. Uh, and uh, so, uh, hey, yeah, uh, so between, let's see, you know, classes, uh, meetings, grading, uh, I managed to, you know, fill up the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and the week and the weekend. And, uh, so. <laughs> yeah, six classes. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Um, I know that, you know, for people that don't teach, you know, six classes, you know, for lecturing for three hours, I mean, that's 18 hours a week, but then, yeah, when you add in all of the other stuff, the grading, the prep coming up with, you know, creating this slide decks and figuring out what you're going to talk about and just doing all of that stuff, it turns into a massive, uh, time, time commitment so it's a it it does uh which is why i think those uh those nice uh what uh, tenured faculty positions at universities where you only have to teach two classes you know have (laughs) two office hours those are uh, those are you're right are are, uh really starting to disappear so yeah that's what we've all aspired to and (laughs) yeah it's just not the reality Uh, anymore (laughs) yeah it is unfortunate yeah too broad a brush by saying they don't exist at all anymore, but they generally only exist in a few places and uh, research one schools, that kind of thing, um, which is, I mean, on the one hand, it's good that there are still some folks that have that, that type of system so they can produce scholarship because the rest of us kind of need that to be able to teach it in our classes and all that. It's, um, but it is something that the rest of us can look at as like, Oh, that'd be nice. It would be nice. Oh, so, you know, it's, uh, it gives us uh, something to aspire to. Right, you know? right. <laughs> it's uh, like, like winning the lottery. Yeah. You know, it's, it's out there. You can do it. It, it can happen. You Someday. Know? You never know. Yeah. yeah. That's that's true. You know, so, you know, you know how semesters go. So we go uh, fall to spring and then uh, I also teach during the summer. So I don't get, I don't really get a whole lot of time off. Yeah. Uh, so that, that that's the other thing, you know, that uh, it's, it's that 
people say they think you know teachers oh you have the it's a it's a great thing you know you get all these holidays and and the summer you know but it's i i still haven't seen it so uh when i <laughs> right. whenever it happens i'll, I'll let you know yeah. <laughs> right yeah exactly uh, and, and it's also impressive to hear that you're doing six classes and all that while you're also working on a PhD. That sounds, I mean, that sounds oh, like no, stress. It's, <laughs> it's just a second master's, so it's not a, not a PhD. Oh, okay. So. But still, I mean, a <laughs> uh, graduate yeah, degree. I'm, I'm, it, it may go, it may go that direction uh, one day. We'll see. Uh, and we may be, you might invite me back to ask me about uh, graduate work for geographers. So you never know. That's well, that's true. I mean, that, that, and that actually is kind of an interesting uh, question that um, was kind of in the back of my head, but I just haven't got to it. But that, that is a good question. I mean, how does, how does, how do you see geography? I mean, there's obviously history happens in places. <laughs> so that besides that, though, what do you see as kind of the relationship between geography and uh, history? Oh, I think it's a good one. Uh, in fact, I think what's what's intriguing is the the way we use maps to tell stories uh, as the, the, the visual cues uh, make it easier for a lot of students to, to understand. Once you start, you know, pointing it out, you, they can picture it, then uh, the the story makes more sense. the The narrative becomes a, a bit more detailed, uh, and the uh, the truth is is that like geography is, uh, I think GIS is one of the uh, top three growth industries that's supposed to happen uh, here in the United States in the next couple of years. So that's uh, that's the other thing is that uh, there's so many more uh, applications or or ways to uh, to use this. Uh, in conjunction, not only with history, but with uh, with a lot of other things. So, uh, it, it, yeah, uh, my advice to people is to, uh, you know, is to follow your passion, but uh, also to oh, keep a lookout for uh, for opportunities. Yeah, and do you see history and geography kind of employing the same types of, of skills, or are the geography does that require a bit more of a scientific bent than history does? Or do you see like the skills kind of overlapping with like critical thinking? That no, kind of I thing? think the, I think the skills do overlap because both rely heavily on uh, critical thinking and, uh, and uh, a lot of high level reasoning skills. And I think that's the, uh, I think that's where the, the good overlay is, is because as uh, being able to, to, uh, to do research and understand the data uh, is uh I think paramount both in uh, in history uh, and in geography. So, uh, no, I see the two uh, hand in hand. They complement each other really, really well. Uh, and I'm hoping that we'll get the opportunity uh, once I I finish the the second masters. I get the opportunity to teach some uh, geography classes uh, here at Guilford Tech. So yeah, okay. Yeah, and I took, I mean, I, I took geography classes back in my community college days, too, and I was fascinated at the time. I, I obviously didn't didn't follow up with it, but I thought it was a really interesting, I mean, it's different from geology, so it's not like you're studying the different rock formations and all that, but in a way, you still are, because you're still, it's still like where things are and how things are spatially related to each other and all of that, and I've always thought, one of my interests in history has always been um, environmental history. And so oh, yeah. the kind of the connection between the I've usually I've been focusing on like the social and legal relationships between people and environments when it comes to like environmental protection, that kind of thing. But there's also there's also just the kind of the the, the 
spatial relationship between people and the land that they they live in and because you you don't want to get too deterministic saying that the land always dictates the history but there is a relationship there because the land does shape the history to a certain extent because you know just where things are it will influence the events and all that true uh to a to a certain degree uh and that that really does uh uh it uh, it's a factor, but I, I don't think it should uh, overshadow, you know, human development. Uh, right. you know, so, uh, you know, um, yeah, I think it's uh, what's the, the best way to describe it is that uh, the, it's, it's, it, uh, geography should complement just about every field. And history gives you the, the way to understand how all the pieces fit together. And so, no, I, uh, I, yeah, I, that's what I... I I think that's probably the the best of both worlds. There. Do you have any other thoughts on kind of uh, students that are looking for a career in history related fields uh, before we move on to our recommendations? Sure. Uh, let's see if they're interested in. Well, one of the other things that I, I found uh, that's really good networking is that also in the summers I'm a uh, reader for the the AP exam for uh, European history. Uh, and that is an excellent networking and professional development tool uh, for anybody uh, who's in, or anybody who's uh, recently graduated uh, or uh, teaching and they'd like that opportunity to, yeah, basically see the, the inside of the, of the machine, I guess, you know, to, I think that's, uh, it's a fantastic opportunity. I meet a lot of good, good colleagues from all over the country because we all come together for uh, one week and we all grade AP exams. And, you know, it's a, it's a good social opportunity as well as a, a financial one. Uh, so especially if you can get in, uh, if you can get in good with it, then uh, there's, I say, yeah, there's, there's a lot of good opportunities. Yeah, I've never actually done that myself, but I have through this podcast and just through general interactions with um, other historians, I've come across that actually is a pretty popular activity for a lot of historians kind of across the board. And a lot their responses to it is pretty much identical to yours. And it's a great networking opportunity. It's a way to kind of keep your, your, your finger on the pulse of student populations, that kind of thing. But it's also a really good way to get together with other historians and just have some really good conversations and stuff. Because then you can find out about other opportunities. That's how I, I learned about, because uh, I recently applied for a Mellon grant to do some historical preservation on a uh, Revolutionary War uniform that we have over here in the, the Greensboro Historical Museum. And so if I get the grant money, uh, I can, uh, I'll have an opportunity to do the research to uh, find out who really are, who the uniform actually belongs to. At the same time, we'll also be able to uh, restore and preserve it. Uh, so, you know, future generations can, uh, can actually see what one of these things might have looked like. So, uh, but yes, that's the thing is that you gotta, uh, you gotta be willing to network. You gotta be willing to, to, to get out there and to, uh, to talk to other people. All right. Well, do you have anything, uh, do you have anything to recommend to us today? Sure, I do actually. Uh, so my good friend Jeff Kinder just uh, did a or he just did a, a C-SPAN video uh, on uh, Civil War uh, weaponry. The uh, and so if you get an opportunity to to see it, just go to uh, C-SPAN and uh, type in his name uh, Jeff Kinard, K-I-N-A-R-D, and you get to see him giving a really good uh, interactive uh, lecture to a. a, a a group of students on uh, what the the firearms of the the Civil War are, uh, and 
or were, uh, and uh, the main star of the show, it, it's not him, it's all the guns that he brought in, and that you can actually see students, you know, get some hands-on experience, uh, so uh, that's one of the, the best ways to, uh, to uh, I'm not going to say make history come alive, but to make it more tangible uh, for students to engage with. So uh, check out his video. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, he did a fantastic job. So uh, yeah, that's that's my plug. Okay, cool. Yeah, I look forward to checking that out. That sounds really cool. Um, my recommendation is uh, a teaching aid. Uh, there's another podcast out there called Footnoting History, which is a, it's a great podcast. It's um, their premise is that they like to talk about the little stories of history that kind of get lost in the footnotes. And uh, a couple of uh, people that... I hope to talk to for this podcast will be, they, they work on that podcast. So anyway, the podcast, one of the administrators for that podcast, Elizabeth Burbridge has put together a teaching guide where she created a, a, a list and a spreadsheet of the various episodes of that podcast that teachers can use in their classes. And so she's organized different podcasts by region and by time period and by thematic content, uh, that kind of thing. So that that way, it's easy to find and that people and that that way teachers can incorporate uh, the podcast episodes into their into their teaching. So if whether it's online or in person or whatever, it's a way for students to kind of see um, kind of applied history in podcast form. Uh, so you can do it as a multimedia type thing or it's just another way to kind of supplement lecture material, supplement reading material uh, to talk about the, uh, the various podcasts. And there's lots of other podcasts out there that do his that cover history topics, and so there's there's some other teaching guides like that out there also. But today I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend this one done through the uh, Footnoting History uh, podcast page, and I will put a link to that in the episode notes for this uh, episode. Oh, sounds great. Oh, it's one I haven't heard of before, so I look forward to checking it out. Thank too. you for uh, joining me today, Adam. Ah, oh, no worries. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you all for listening today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any other podcast, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com, or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Adam Lehman, I'm Rob Denning. Have a happy October.